0: from a whole new context. Welcome to Podtextualizing the Past.
1: Hello, I'm Sue Stanfield and I'm with the History Department at the University of Texas at El Paso. With the recent Supreme Court decision on abortion rights, I became curious, what is the history of abortion in this country? Today, we're very fortunate to have the opportunity to talk with Dr. Evan Elizabeth Hart, an assistant professor at Missouri Western State University, where she specializes in women's history, African American history, and medical history. Welcome, Evan.
0: Thank you for having me. I'm looking forward to talking to you.
1: Well, I guess to start out, um, you know, we think of reproductive um, health as being sort of a modern issue, but it it probably has. Lasted for a long time, and I'm curious. um, Like, let's say if we look at the 1700s, what were what were some of the issues that concerned women's health?
0: Um, You know, I would say that women's health concerns, no matter when you're looking, aren't dramatically different than the reproductive or women's health concerns that people have now. Women wanted safe pregnancies. They wanted healthy births. They wanted children who, you know, reached adulthood. Um, they wanted periods that were regular, that were painless, and they simply want to be healthy. That women in the 1700s want to be healthy, just as you know, folks in 2022 want to be healthy. Um, you know, the issue though is that that's not always possible. It's right. more difficult in the seventeen hundreds or eighteenth century to keep yourself as healthy as women at the time would have liked. And it's also important to note that women are interested in controlling their fertility; that they're interested in spacing out births; that they're interested in you know controlling the size of their families as much as possible. Um, I know that we're probably talking a little bit uh, about birth control. Um, but women are, you know, wanting to control their reproductive health and the number of children that they're bearing as much as humanly possible. So they want to be healthy and they want healthy kids and they want healthy families. And I think that's really what people want now too.
1: so did um so did this switch at all, like the the desire for birth control? when people needed smaller families versus large families, or was it just uh, an impact of what, what birth control was available?
0: Um, I would say a little bit of both. Um, economically, it does change over time, right? If we're looking at, let's just say 1890 versus 1790, yeah, you're going to want fewer children because okay. the economic context, the context of women's lives is significantly different. And so, yeah, women are going to want to have fewer children in 1890 than they do in 1790. But regardless of the period we're talking about, women want to ensure that they're healthy and that their pregnancies are as safe as possible and that their children are living. And all of those things often require spacing out the number of children that you're having, spacing out the time frame between children. Because even in the 18th century, um, most midwives and most women understood that it's not okay. It's not really healthy for you to have child after child after child after child with not a lot of space in between. So even if women wanted more children, that is controlling their fertility, right? Making Mm -hmm. the conscious decision to want more children. Um, But they also want to make sure that at all times that their families are as healthy as possible. And so some of that is a conscious desire to control fertility more in the 19th versus the 18th centuries. But that does have a lot to do with the access of more effective forms of birth control that are going to start coming about, um, you know, in the 19th century, but really in the 20th century. Are women going to have access to very effective forms of birth control?
1: So what was the like, life expectancy for women in the 1700s and then in the 1800s, 1900s? You know, what, did, what did it look like in terms of, of life expectancy during pregnancy?
0: So pregnancy is dangerous. It's dangerous now. Um, I think we tend not to think about it as being dangerous because most women survive. But it still is dangerous. It is. Um, I was looking up a statistic and it's the sixth leading cause of death among women now is childbirth. So it's still a dangerous proposition. Um, trying to understand life expectancy rates is difficult because if a woman made it through her childbearing years, chances are she was going to live to an older age, you know, mm-hmm. thinking her 60s, 70s. Um, some women are living till their 80s and 90s. It's not super common, but it happens. But one in eight women during um, the colonial period will die during childbirth. And that's a, you know, it's a significant number. You know, if you have oh, yeah. eight women in a room, one of them will die during childbirth. And that is going to drag that life expectancy rate down. So it really just depends. If you make it through your childbearing years, you could expect to live you a know, pretty long life. Um, if you were one of those unfortunate women who died during childbirth, well, obviously that's going to make the life expectancy rate much lower. Um, but we're talking about on average, I mean, the rates aren't ideal for us because we don't have like a Bureau of Vital Statistics in the 18th century. Right. Um, But estimates are between 10 and 15 out of every thousand births will lead to a death of a woman. So it's like one to one and a half percent. Of live births will lead, or excuse me, of births will lead to the death of a woman, and that might not sound huge if we're saying one to one and a half percent, but you have to think that's every single time women give birth. Okay. So every single time a woman gives birth, she has between a one and a one and a half percent chance of dying. And just to give you like a perspective, because I mean that probably doesn't mean a lot to a lot of people. Okay, that sounds high, but what is it now? And, for example, in 2020, it's about 23.8 per 100,000 births are going to lead to the death of a woman. And FYI, that's still pretty high Um, compared especially to European nations, et cetera. um, America's maternal mortality rate is still pretty high. But it's gotten progressively better, right? It's kind of... um, plateaued around here so I would say you know starting roughly in the 1980s on it's plateaued around this 23 you know per 100,000 births.
1: But of course like uh, life expectancy is very dependent on race too isn't it? Yes absolutely. Um, So I'm wondering in like the 1700s and in 1800s who treated women for birth control for pregnancies? I mean, did they treat themselves? Did they were they midwives? Were did they go to doctors?
0: Generally, women in the community and midwives.
1: Okay.
0: So midwives are going to be those who attend women during birth, especially. But birth is a community event in the colonial period, in particular. Um, we have accounts of women having upwards of ten to fifteen other women. In the room with them as they're giving birth. Now, obviously, um, anyone who's ever given birth knows that it's not a quick thing. <laughs> so that's a rotating group of women. But as women are giving birth, there is always other women with them and they're not always their relatives. They're other, their neighbors, their community members. Women's reproductive health was the realm of women. It's not something in colonial America that men had anything to do with. So it's purely women's um, issue. It's a purely women's interest. Um, you know, we think of now like fathers being in the delivery room, if there is right, a father. Um, at the time, no, never. right? Men aren't there. It's not something for men to be involved with. And when we think of um, birth control, that sort of thing, women are often taking that on themselves, learning about it from women in their community learning about it from midwives, learning about it even from um, you know herbal books. So lots of women were in charge of sort of the health care of their family so oftentimes when we're thinking about just healthcare care generally. women took that on for their families right They're the ones who dealt with caring for the sick and so they often had especially if they were um, literate, they would have you know different books that would have different recipes. you know here's what you do when someone has a fever or here's what you do when someone um, is vomiting, right? Different sort of um, remedies that you could do. And those books also had remedies for controlling fertility, um, in particular for um, bringing on menzies, right? So sometimes women would notice that their periods weren't as regular as they would have liked or that a period was late and they would find various tonics to help bring on their period. And so, again, this is all done by women. So it's women who are looking these things up, women who are learning about it from friends and family, women who are going to midwives who were always women at the time. Um, There are some doctors at the time who may have attended, um, especially very wealthy women, um, but it still wasn't common because most male physicians know little to nothing about the female reproductive system in the 18th century. They just don't know anything about it Mm -hmm. because that's not what they were trained in. It's not really until the 19th century that we start to see um, professional physicians getting involved in women's reproductive health.
1: Okay. So um, when did, when did abortion become illegal in this country? And I know it's probably also regional, but in general,
0: It's about a century-long process. It doesn't happen quickly, and it doesn't happen overnight. And you are absolutely right that it is a regional um, process. The first state that outlaws abortion in any way, shape, or form is Connecticut in 1821. And this law was actually what we consider now a poison control law. So what a lot of women did... Is when their periods were late and they were what we would consider now pregnant. Women didn't think of themselves as pregnant until this um, period that we call quickening. And that's around like the fourth or fifth month of pregnancy. And that's when a woman can feel the fetus, right? They can feel movement, they can feel kicking. That's really when a woman was considered to be pregnant. And I know that might be kind of hard for some of us to wrap our minds around because we're so used to knowing very early now, right? If somebody is pregnant because we have home pregnancy tests, we have really good blood tests. We don't have that throughout the 18th and 19th centuries. So women can't know for sure that they're pregnant until they feel the baby move. And so before that, it was really common for women as a form of birth control to bring on their periods. Um, They would call it like bringing down the flowers, which is actually a medieval term. Um, And they would take all kinds of concoctions. So, you know, tansy tea, um, penny royal. There's all kinds of different herbs and concoctions that they could take. And those would help bring on their period. And we would understand this now as a form of abortion because oftentimes they were pregnant in a medical sense and they are terminating that pregnancy. They wouldn't have thought about it that way at the time, but that's what medically is happening. The problem though is that things like Tansy Tea and Penny Royal are toxic. That's why they bring on, right, your period because they're toxic. And so there are women who are getting extremely ill or are dying from taking these various concoctions, right? So if we have anybody listening, don't (laughs) drink tansy tea, don't take Penny Royal, anything like that, because it's toxic, especially in the amounts that you would have to take in order to terminate a pregnancy. And so there were officials who were concerned about this, concerned about the fact that women are getting very ill or dying from these methods. And so Connecticut only makes abortion illegal after quickening and with the use of what we call abortifacients. So things like tansy tea, pennyroyal, etc. that will terminate a pregnancy. And again, that's really a poison control measure because states are becoming more interested in those kinds of issues. The fact that people are ingesting all sorts of things that are dangerous for them. After that, um, we have a few states. Um, I'm in the state of Missouri. Missouri's the second who passes a similar law in 1825. And we have some states who follow suit. And then again, starting in the 1830s, we have states outlawing abortion after quickening through the use of both an instrument and abortifacients. So they're making all forms of abortion illegal after quickening. And then what we start to see over time, and again, this happens in a very haphazard way, is that state by state, they start passing the same laws, outlawing abortion after quickening. And then what we start to see is that the medical profession, particularly the um, American Medical Association, becomes very interested in outlawing abortion always, right? In all cases, except what we call therapeutic abortion. So in the case of Um, a pregnancy being a danger to a woman's life. What that all adds up to is that by 1910, every state in the United States has made abortion illegal, whether pre or post quickening. So it's, you know, basically from 1821 to 1910, we see this process happening through which it's a long piecemeal process that abortion becomes illegal through the United States. But by 1910, every state in the union at the time Has made abortion illegal, has made it illegal pre and post
1: quickening. So does it make a difference how the woman gets the abortion? I mean, if she takes, you know, drinks the tansy tea, is it enforced differently than if she has a midwife or even a friend that is involved in the abortion? Or if she uses medical device instead of, you know, drinking something?
0: Yeah, again it depends on the state. Most of the time what the state is interested or who the state is interested in is other people performing abortions or prescribing those kinds of concoctions. So most states are not particularly interested in going after the women who are having the abortions. Now that's going to change and it's going to be, you know, state by state some never do it, some never go after the women Some states do, but most of the time what they're interested in are the people who perform them. And so if a woman, um, you know, finds one of these old books, you know, drinks these concoctions, et cetera, she's probably not going to find herself prosecuted. But if she goes to see a doctor or a midwife who says, here, take these teas or drink, you know, this concoction that I'm going to give you, um, then that person is liable. So, it's almost always the midwives and the physicians who are performing the abortions. Um, and most of the time, the midwives and the doctors who are doing it are performing what we call, um, you know, instrument abortions. So, mm-hmm. not using um, the various abortifacients because they are, they don't always work, first of all. And second of all, um, a lot of them don't know what to prescribe exactly, right? Because it's sort of hit or miss what's going to work. Right. Um, so most of the time they're doing, um, you know, abortions with instruments, and that's who the state is particularly interested in going after. They're also interested in pharmacists and apothecaries who are, you know, putting together the herbs and various um, concoctions and selling them as um, abortion teas. So it's really the people giving these things to women or performing these things that are really going to um, face state control.
1: So if you wanted something for an abortion, would you, like, let's say we're in the the 18 or 1800s now, um, would you read about it and like, were there ads, were there, would you just go to your local pharmacy with, were there code words? I mean, how did, how did people know?
0: Um, yeah, there's all kinds of, um, interesting ways. So, um, you know, just kind of an interesting example from Missouri, okay? So I was looking at some newspapers and um, farmers have to sometimes um, terminate the pregnancy of cattle for a variety of reasons, okay? And I was reading a newspaper article that was talking about how they didn't understand why all of a sudden women were the ones coming in to buy the abortifacients for the cattle, (laughs) (laughs) it used to be their husbands. Um, And again, I can't say for certain that these women were taking it themselves, but it's likely. Um, And we've had some historians who have done some excellent work looking at advertisements that are in the public. They're in newspapers, uh, various places that are selling forms of birth control or forms of abortifacients. And they're using all sorts of code words or code terms. And a lot of it has to do with... um, controlling your period. And a lot of it is coded in such a way where it makes it sound like you are trying to control your period so you can get pregnant versus saying it like, no, 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 like this is a pregnancy. Um, and uh, women are really good at uh, reading between the lines and the officials are also reading between the lines. But technically those ads aren't breaking the law because they're not talking about Abortifacients. They're not talking about um, post the Comstock Act of 1873, which bans um, like illicit or obscene materials from the mail. Um, and the government decided that meant birth control. Um, you know, they're getting around those laws by not making it obvious. But pretty much everyone knows what it means. And again, midwives have knowledge that's been passed down um, from, you know, the women that they worked with, right? Who they, um, if you, like this term, interned with to learn how to be midwives, that information has been passed down. And so they have a lot of that information as well. And they are more willing to give it to women um, without writing it down, right? Or without being very explicit all the time about it.
1: So what what do you think is the future for reproductive health for, for women?
0: Um, I mean, I, I would say we've taken some steps backwards, um, regardless of your personal and political feelings about um, abortion, because most of us have strong feelings about it. Um, the fact of the matter is, is that access to abortion has been critical to women's um, increased life expectancy, to women's um, ability to control their fertility and the ability of women to have future healthy pregnancies. Because I think sometimes what people forget is that abortion is a medical term. It means the end of a pregnancy. So it's whether we're talking about um, what they call spontaneous abortion, which is a miscarriage, or whether we're talking about um, when physicians or women end their pregnancies themselves. And we're already seeing what happened pre row happen again, where doctors are becoming um, concerned about their livelihoods if they um, intervene in life-threatening emergencies. Um, almost every state now that is passing um, anti-abortion legislation has what we call therapeutic abortion clauses which say that abortions can be performed in life-threatening emergencies. But the question becomes, well, when is that? When is a pregnancy life-threatening? And we would like to think that it's obvious, but it, it isn't always. You know, I'm thinking of, you know, cases of ectopic pregnancies. Okay. And these are pregnancies which occur outside of the uterus. Most often in the fallopian tubes, but anywhere outside of the uterus. And they're not incredibly common, but they're not rare either. And the issue with that is it will always end. That is not a viable pregnancy. And the question is, well, at what point is it life-threatening, right? If we intervene when we discover an ectopic pregnancy, most of the time women are feeling okay because it's not led yet to hemorrhaging, um, sepsis, et cetera. So can we intervene at that point? Or do we, as many doctors are doing now, have to wait until we start to see signs of medical emergency, such as um, poor vitals, hemorrhaging, fever, that sort of thing? Um, So I'm concerned about the lives of women. Um, I'm concerned that we're going to start to see that maternal mortality rate climb again. Um, Because that mortality rate I gave you before, that's all American women. If we look specifically at, um, you know, impoverished women, that rate goes up a lot. If we look at women of color, um, that number goes up quite a bit. Um, So I'm concerned about what's going to happen for impoverished women, women of color, and what kind of impact this is going to have on um, women's ability to control their fertility. Because there's always, there's already discussions of, um, if not, outright banning very effective forms of birth control, um, limiting their use. So we're talking about things like intrauterine devices or IUDs, Um, Plan B, which is a medication you take um, to prevent pregnancy after unprotected um, intercourse. Um, Even some discussions of, you know, banning things like birth control pills, that when we start to chip away at privacy rights through abortion, we're chipping away at all privacy rights, and that is what our um, right to access birth control is based on as well. So I think we are heading back to a period in which um, anyone who's interested in controlling fertility, anyone who's interested in the lives of you know individuals who can get pregnant, that we are going to have to start working again towards ensuring access to these things because they are life saving.
1: So um, like in Missouri, Mm -hmm. if we look at the late 19th, early 20th century, did doctors have the same knowledge about when women's health was endangered? Was it, um, is that sort of more of a modern approach?
0: Um, It's more modern because if we think about, so we think about what causes death during pregnancy and during childbirth. We're looking largely at a few things. So during pregnancy, we're looking at very high blood pressure, right, which we call preeclampsia. We're looking at higher risk of stroke and heart attack, right, because estrogen for women can cause higher risk of stroke and heart attack. And when you're pregnant, you've got a lot of estrogen, right, more than normal. Um, And we're also looking at um, really rare things such as forms of embolisms um, that come from Um, amniotic fluid, etc. If you don't have the tools to see those things, which they didn't have very well in the early 20th century, no, you can't treat it very well. And then if we look at the causes of um, death during childbirth, um, some of those are pretty easy to treat and some of them are not. So again, we're largely looking at um, high blood pressure. So if you don't treat pre-eclampsia, it turns into e- eclampsia, which is high blood pressure post um, birth, which often leads to stroke and seizing. Um, but we're also looking at hemorrhaging, right? Um, through a variety of causes. And we're looking at infection. Infection rates had dropped dramatically once midwives and doctors realized you need to wash your hands. Now, that sounds kind of funny to us, but it's true. Once they realize that infection is caused by germs and that germs can be on your hands and your equipment, that once they started disinfecting and washing, et cetera, the threat of infection does not disappear, but it goes down pretty dramatically. So we're looking at things like hemorrhage, which physicians at the time knew a few methods to try and close that down quickly. But it's not ideal, right? We're oftentimes not in a hospital. We oftentimes don't have blood um, ready to, um, you know, give to women who are hemorrhaging. So it depends on the cause of the hemorrhage and how quickly and how um, well-trained the physician or midwife is in, you know, controlling that. And when we think of, you know, eclampsia, et cetera, they're not great at it. They don't know what to do. We don't have the medications yet. And I'm thinking of, especially if any of the listeners have seen um, the show Downton Abbey. Um, I was thinking this too. (laughs) I'm sorry.
1: I was thinking this too.
0: So Sybil, um, the youngest daughter, dies of eclampsia, right? And the other thing is that a lot of those issues can be not solved, but handled through cesarean sections, and those aren't performed often. Right. Until we get later into the 20th century. So we're thinking like the 30s, 40s, 50s. Um, before that, it's a dangerous proposition. And oftentimes cesarean sections are done on women who have died or are right at imminent risk of death.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: it's getting better by the time we hit the 20th century, but it's still not great. Um, they can try. Um, but... Yeah. A lot of times we don't know that your life is at risk until it's immediate. And a lot of times those immediate concerns, we can't solve them, right? At different points in our history. And women still die of things like eclampsia. It still happens, right? With shocking regularity. So we're still not great at it. And it's 2022.
1: I have a a friend that suffered from that. And uh, she gave birth to some, I mean, She was at like 20 weeks, you know, so it was very small. She survived, as did the baby, shockingly enough. But um, it was really hit and miss for.
0: Yeah, I had a friend as well who ended up with HELP syndrome, which is often what happens after preeclampsia, which is when essentially your organs start going into shutdown. Mm -hmm. Right. And she survived as well. But it was it was close. Um, And that happens more often, I think, than we would we would like to admit that it happens.
1: Well, um, I always ask our guests to, to help us to contextualize the past with um, sort of more modern ideas. So, if uh, social media had existed in the 1700s or 1800s, what kind of hashtags might have someone been used to speak for or against abortion rights?
0: Um, I came up with a few. Some of them are a little silly, but <laughs> I think they would have... Um mattered. So I think one of my favorites is bring on the flowers, um, because that is one of the terms that are used regularly by women and midwives to talk about control of fertility and especially those early abortions, right? So hashtag bring on the flowers. Um, I also thought hashtag, um, you know, women's realm thinking about that, you know, for much of our history, uh, childbirth, fertility, women's reproduction, that's all under women's roles, women's to control. Um, I also thought hashtag protect women, which could actually go a few different ways.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, women themselves could have used that to try and you know call for access to abortion. But a lot of the politicians and physicians pushing for early anti-abortion legislation are talking about it as a way to protect women. Um, I also had hashtag protect life. Because what's interesting is that, you know, that quickening doctrine had been um, this idea that you're not really pregnant, you don't really have a life in you, until quickening had been the case for, you know, centuries, right? Even in medieval um, Europe, for example, that was the idea, you're not really pregnant until quickening. And once um, the American Medical Association got involved, a lot of physicians are saying, well, when does life begin? Why are we kind of using this arbitrary quickening doctrine? Um, and so a lot of doctors are saying, well, if life begins when she's pregnant, then abortion should be illegal at every stage, right? So it's kind of this argument. And then my last one that I came up with was hashtag regulars, not midwives, because one thing we didn't talk too much about is that a lot of the early efforts to outlaw abortion was not so much to actually outlaw abortion completely, but it was to take women's health concerns out of the hands of midwives and to give it to what were called the regulars, meaning trained physicians. You know, that the idea is that they're the ones who can do these things safely, that they can protect women, that they'll know when a woman's life is at risk. So this idea of, um, you know, anti-midwife sentiment that midwives are dangerous, that midwives don't have good outcomes, which is actually not the case and giving control of women's health into the hands of physicians. Right. So those are some of the ones that I, you know, kind of thought of.
1: Well, thank you very much for talking to us today. I, I personally learned so much about the, um, process in in early American history and and even how it relates to today. So I, I appreciate your time.
0: Well, thank you so much. I've enjoyed speaking with you. Podtextualizing the past was created by Susan Stanfield, assistant professor of history at the University of Texas at El Paso, and is produced by Adrian Mesa from UTEP's Creative Studios. <laughs>